Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and uh, look, we're really pumped about this episode. It's not every day that we're able to get an ex-CMHC underwriter to come on the Your Life, Your Term show and peel back the curtain and talk about what they did in their role as a multi-unit apartment building underwriter at CMHC. So with Pierre-Paul Turgeon, we do that on this episode. He's a really passionate guy. I don't know if I've ever met anyone more passionate um, when talking about apartment buildings. He really gets into it. Uh, so enjoy this talk. And before you, we get into it, I just want to share. Over the last few years, we've continued to gather data about the housing market, about income levels in Canada, and we've combined all this stuff in a report. You may have heard me mention it before, but if you haven't, it's called The Destruction of the Middle Class. You can get it at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash no more middle. And the reason that we're sharing this stuff is, look, Nick and I want everyone to know that we didn't get involved in real estate investing and real estate as an asset class because we just fell in love with the asset class. We got involved in real estate investing because we, we believe that real estate was one asset that the wealthy seemed to own. And if there is this trend towards incomes not being able to keep up with good assets, we want to make sure for ourselves and our families, we've put ourselves in the correct and, and most proper position that we can. And that's why we document this stuff the way we do. So, you know, we like real estate for what it offers ourselves and our family. We're not like just passionately love and, uh, uh, with real estate for this, just the sake of it. Um, you know, we really love the benefits that it gives us. And we've defined some of those and outlined some of the trends in this destruction of the middle class report. So if you haven't get a, had a chance to look at it yourself yet, there's charts on there, inter, historic interest rates charts, uh, maps of the golden horseshoe and the green belt and kind of the density build out of that area. So it's called the destruction of the middle class. You can get it at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash no more middle. And with that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Pierre Paul, do I still got gotcha? you? Yes, you do. Okay, we are live with Pierre Paul Tourjean. How am I saying your last name? Uh, you got to extend the R sound a little bit. Tourjean. Oh, Tourjean. <laughs> There you go. Damn, yeah. Man, my grade 11 French is not serving me here. Um, but uh, I, I want to just kind of get into your story a little bit because you have a unique story. How does somebody even find themselves working for CMHC? Like, how did you go to get to a job at CMHC? And the reason I'm asking is because every real estate you know, investor listening to this is always either fascinated, mesmerized, or pissed off at different banks and uh, insurance companies through different stages of their investing lives. So to hear someone have, who, have, who has actually worked at CMHC is like fascinating to me. So how did you get that job? I could see, uh, Tom, that a lot of people would get at times pissed off at uh, my former employer, Jimmy. <laughs> I can easily see that. No, you're not getting your loan amount. We're no, you, you know what I think? The worst, the worst, the absolute worst, is when you're an investor. You found it. First of all, it's hard enough to find a good property. You find a good property, um, and I, I didn't mention Nick is secretly on the phone with us. Just so everyone listening to this is, we rarely do a phone call podcast. We usually we prefer to do everything in person. But Pierre Paul is such a, a special guest. We made an exception, and we're doing uh, this over the phone with him. So Nick is secretly hiding on the phone. Yeah, here I'm, hide, I'm hiding here. I'm just I'm just listening in. I'm, I'm taking working. notes for so I can follow up with uh, CMHC to tell them what their ex employees are saying and then <laughs> yeah, yeah. what kind of trouble I can get them in. <laughs> but the, but the reason I think we all get like slightly frustrated is that's just because you know you find the property and then you negotiate the offer and that's usually a disaster going back and forth. And I say disaster, I don't really mean a disaster. I just mean sometimes it gets emotional, right? You're negotiating the price and looking at the numbers. You finally get this thing locked up and then you have to deal with the banks. And the banks, sometimes at the last minute, and if anyone listening to this hasn't gone through this process, the last minute sometimes they ask for all kinds of different paperwork that you weren't expecting that just throws you for a loop. 
you know, you think you've got everything locked up and then all of a sudden they're asking for different stuff and it just kind of, and, and, and there's other stuff that I want to talk about specifically around appraisals and stuff here, Paul. But yep. uh, yeah, we've all had our, we've all had our moments. So is this, was this like <laughs> a goal of yours? Like I'm going to work for CMHC or how did you get there? So it's, 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 it's very interesting. It's an interesting story and convoluted, but it, it begins by the fact that I, I also have a, a prior degree in international relations or actually political science with a major in international relations from U of T. And CMHC at that time, this goes back to 96, had uh, an international department, CMHC International Division, providing CMHC's um, expertise in mortgage default insurance to foreign countries. All right, so I was involved with that, so that's how it began. I, uh, I, I was hired by that department to work on international housing finance projects in places like the West Bank and Gaza, so I met Nobel Prize winner uh, Yasser Arafat in the Gaza Strip once, uh, Africa, traveled to Gabon, Africa on behalf of CMHC, China, we had a project with uh, uh, the, the Nenshi, uh district in downtown uh, Shanghai, uh, they, they were trying to build and you know, developing a housing finance system, where else, uh, Africa, India, Romania. So that's, initially that's how it started, but I was a project manager and I was negotiating contracts with like uh, the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, which is a subsidiary of the World Bank, and um, and CEDA, which is the Canadian International Development Agency. So pretty cool stuff I did. But the problem back then is I was not a subject specialist of CMC's expertise, which is in mortgage default insurance. So I said, one of the things I said, well, I need to learn because I'd like to deliver on these contracts instead of being the contract negotiator and intermediary between these various uh, international parties. So I ended up taking an assignment in the Calgary office, but I did that for how many years did I do that? Uh, the CNC's head office, I, I want to say about uh, eight years or something like that. So pretty interesting career just from the get-go at CNC. And so in order so to the end, acquire... Just so, clear, just a minute, yeah. so at the end of yeah. the CNC run, just so I'm clear, you were one of the underwriters like approving deals or no? That, now, at that point, I was just managing those international consulting, uh, you know, uh, contracts that CMHC had. So then I got an, a transfer to the Calgary office, and then I became an underwriter. Exactly. I started underwriting uh, small rent, uh, single residences, right, which is where most people know CMHC from, uh, and small rental properties. Then, this is very cool, Tom, because then I moved, and Nick, I moved from being a single underwriter, then they put me into the default management and real estate department within CMHC's Calgary Regional Office. So that has two components. The real estate part is when homeowners default on their properties. Uh, you know, the banks try to sell the properties first. If they're unable to do that after a certain time of exposure on the market, then those, the, 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 the banks transfer titles over to CMHC. I was managing that department called real estate department, small department with a few staffs, three staff. And in addition to that, the second component of my job, I was the manager of that default management and real estate department, was to manage the defaults of apartment buildings. So that's, I did that for four years. And that's important because, you know, you know and then I became a, a multifamily underwriter myself. So that's the, the short story. You're basically telling me you had first access to all the best deals in Calgary. That's what <laughs> I'm hearing. You, that's the way I hear. I hear it. <laughs> you had first access to all the best deals. That's crazy. But, okay, but you so know what? That's not the case. So I don't want people to think that. No, no, I know. I know. I'm just having fun with you. I know. I'm. Uh, you're, I know. I'm just having fun with you. But in Ontario, like, I don't know how it works in Alberta. I don't. I think it's different, right? Like in Ontario, through our power of sale process, and I'm not talking apartment buildings right now. I'm talking just kind of regular residential yeah. properties. We have to list them at fair market value. And then, uh, or the banks do, you know, if they take ownership of the property, they can't just like list them for whatever there is outstanding on a, on a mortgage. Is that the case with the multi-unit space in Alberta or no? A absolutely. But here's the thing. You're asking okay. me specifically a question pertaining to multifamilies. That's what I heard. Um, well, no, yes, or, or I am. I yeah. Am. No, no. If, am, if yes. it's, if it's specifically for multifamily properties, here's the thing, uh, Tom, I, I, I hardly had any properties to manage the defaults for because here's the good news, and I'm not, I'm not giving you any BS here. Apartment buildings, if done properly, rarely default to this day. 
okay, yeah, point yeah, blank. Yeah. I was bored out of my mind. So that's why when I was in the default management <laughs> real estate department, I wanted to be transferred because I had very few projects defaulted in my territory in Alberta, which covered Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, and Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. We ha hardly had any defaults. The only uh, things that I did is, was when I was getting arrears reports from the banks, I would step in and say, what are you doing to mitigate the claims against the MHC? Or I was doing social uh, 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 financial workout for social housing, and these people are not well managed. Okay. Right? Not okay. So I, no, I, I got it. I got it. I just want to clear up this one point, or I just ask you something further. I'm assuming there was no defaults because, Nick, this is something you and I talk about a lot, is that residential real estate and, and even further maybe multi-unit buildings and stuff, it's a very um, – it's considered by the banks, and I'm interested in your thinking on this because I don't know if this is how it's discussed, but it's, a, it's considered a very liquid piece of real estate in Canada, perhaps maybe even the most liquid. And part of the reason for that is you can always find a buyer. And, and, and part of the reason for that is that there is an income component to these apartment buildings. And if the income's there, you're likely going to be able to find a buyer to buy this thing. Is that, is that part of the reason, all of the reason why you didn't see many defaults? Uh, it, it is a fact. However, I know you guys deal a lot with small rental properties as well. It's less liquid than a, a smaller rental home, definitely, but it is also liquid, yes. That's the reason. But it's also because it's a lower risk asset, uh, Tom and Nick, because your, your vacancy risk, which is a lot greater than the smaller rental properties, when it comes to larger apartment buildings, is diluted among more units. The example I would give, I own a 24-unit building. If I have one vacancy, that represents, what, 4%? So that means that the building is still operating at 96% capacity, still paying the principal yeah, down sure. in so the mortgage. It's a, yeah, yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really good, easy um, business to pick up because there's always going to be an income component. i got to break the bad news to you, though, on, on the single-family home stuff in, in Ontario, and I'm sure it might be across Canada, but definitely in the Golden Horseshoe. The vacancies on these things, um, Pierre Paul, are non-existent. Not, not <laughs> you put up a for rent sign in Ontario, and I think this is important for everyone to understand that just the changes in mortgage rules as of January 1st of this year, you know, the, the continuing influx of immigration into the Golden Horseshoe, uh, so the population growth, uh, the number of new units built isn't matching the demand, the vacancy rate um, is obscenely low. Actually, Nick, I don't even know if you know off the top of your head. You were telling me something a couple of days ago about just the need for a certain amount of units and then what's actually being built in Ontario. Yeah, I think the, need, no? the, need, the need right now over the last couple of years, um, I have some stats on this and the sources, so don't quote me on these exact numbers, but roughly the last couple of years have been just over about 50,000, 50 to 55,000 in this area. And the supply has been about 35,000, which has caused like this, you know, one, one of the reasons there's such a shortage in units um, in and around the GTA area. So, yeah, so one, one, one of the things that always, I'm a believer that's good about everything, right? So the good side to, to, to your point, Pierre Paul, that, that one vacant's empty, you know, in that example, it's 4%. But then at the same time, there's, you know, there's 21 tenants to deal with. And for people that don't want to deal with tenants, well, you got to deal with 21 of them, so that sucks. Do you know what I mean? So there's like, there's the isn't there yeah. the flip side of the same the same thing, really, right? Okay. I just think I, I mean I, there's all, like there's no one I don't know in my mind there's always there's never a one one thing's never better than another. There's just like find the positives and the negatives to it, and then figure out which one you want to deal with for the lifestyle that you want. I, agree. I don't know. I agree. I just, that's just what I've heard from people, right? No, no, I agree, but I mean, of course, that you know, I, I got a, I got a law degree as well. I probably shouldn't say that, but I do. So, the, the oh counter argument what you're saying. We have a standing rule that there's very we lawyers <laughs> are not allowed on this podcast. <laughs> on the podcast, that's it. We can end it oh, now. <laughs> well, we made an exception for Chris a few months ago. Now you secretly tell us that you have a law degree as well. Oh my gosh! Okay. No, no, but don't hold it against me. Don't give me any bad lawyer jokes either. I've, I've heard them all. Um, yeah. No, no, but but here's the thing. You're right, Nick. It, it, there's pros and cons, and and uh, you know when I speak about this, uh, you know publicly about investing in multifamily property, I do make a, I, I do tell the full story, which is the cons as well. You're right. Uh, th there's different different advantages and disadvantages to both. There's no doubt about it, right? It, it's harder to get capital because you need a larger amount for one, right? So there's definitely di different disadvantages. But just to specifically address your concern about uh, having multiple tenants, when you run the numbers for an apartment building, here's the good news. 
the biggest hassles of being a larger landlord are not handled by you, the owner. They're handled by your professional property manager and your on-site manager. Those are two separate expense items when you crunch the numbers, and they're the people that handle all the hassles of being a landlord, to be honest with you. But, yes, you're right. I mean, you need more capital, uh, uh, but it's also less labor-intensive for that reason. So that's one significant advantage. And I know your motto is uh, your life, your terms, which is very dear to me as well. Uh, but you get a better lifestyle with the larger apartment buildings because the hassles of being a landlord are handled by your team, your property manager, and your on-site manager. Those are two separate people, right? So it's uh, so very cool in that regard. So you started doing the underwriting. Um, you got bored because, you know, nothing was really happening. And then did you – what happened then in your life? Because you, I know you're not with CMHC now. So no. what, what, was, what happened? You, you, stayed, you stayed along with CMHC for a little longer? Uh, I, yeah, I was a multifamily underwriter for four years. So I, I've seen I've seen the 2008 uh, credit crunch, then the recession of 2009, and here's the revelation I got. So a couple of things happened. Uh, so I left CMHC for two reasons. First of all, uh, it was my coming out as an entrepreneur. Like I couldn't stand the bureaucratic life. And, and let me say this is not a criticism towards CMHC. On the contrary, now you know I, I, I you know I worked for CMHC International. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, I do understand that we have, and I know this for a fact, and the 2009 recession proved that, we in Canada have the best housing finance system in the entire world, bar none, okay? So I'm very grateful for the career I had. At the end of the day, it was still a bureaucratic entity. Uh, you got to sing the song from the song sheet that they provide you, and it, it, it was a confining environment, and both of you are self-employed uh, entrepreneurs, Somebody owned me, owned my time, owned the best of me, and I couldn't do that anymore. And so it's one of the reasons why I left. But also, I want to go back to 2009. Uh, we were in our you know, multifamily underwriting department. We were the busiest ever in CMEC's history, like the history of that department. So worst recession since the Great Depression of you know, 1930, yet we were busy and we were not. We were mostly busy not with purchases, people purchasing apartment buildings, but including that actually, but mostly with people refinancing their apartment buildings. So, how can you reconcile that worst recession since the Great Depression, and yet we were so busy? Our turnaround times went from uh, a few weeks to two or three months. It was crazy. The reason is because I saw so much wealth being created in 2009 during that uh, recession, because people who had been sitting on uh, multifamily properties that they own free and clear were refinancing. Remember what happened to interest rate uh, rates, uh, Tom? You're, you're good in that department. You remember it's by, in my how, brain how much forever. they dropped? Huh? Yes. yes they dropped by a point and a half, I think, if I'm not correct, like something in that vicinity, right? So people were refinancing their properties and making millions, pulling out millions and millions in, in equity. Uh, so that's, I saw how much wealth can be created, you know, with multifamily properties. Plus, I was tired of being a bureaucrat, of the cubicle mentality and all of that. So I left to strike it on my own. So that's sort of my story. And now, you know, the rest is history. I own 150 so what year, doors. What year, what, what year did you leave? 20, 2010, March 2010. 2010. Do you still think CMHC is one of the, you know, one of the, the best-run mortgage insurers in the world? Oh, absolutely is. I mean, I think they go overboard when it comes to their policies, mind you. Um, so you think they're too conservative? especially when it comes to multifamily properties because it's OSFI, right? You know, it's the office of the, the, office of the superintendent of financial institutions, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that guides uh, the, the financial institutions, the banks, and all of that. OSFI, they're all a bunch of, uh, you know, bureaucrats as well. They're not like you and I in the trenches owning and, you know, uh, buying a real estate. So they make rules that paint the whole real estate industry with the same brush. But we, we don't have the same kind of challenges that, you know, uh, that small, you know, real estate investors have on the multifamily side. I told you to this day, properties, multifamily, apartment buildings don't default. So the problem there is there, we are being painted with the same conservative brush when it comes to the multifamily. On the residential side of small rental uh, I love how passionate, Pierre Paul, I love how passionate you are about apartment buildings. 
I maybe have never spoken to anyone as passionate about apartment buildings <laughs> as you. Because like in, the way I hear you, it's like everything is like amazing with the apartment buildings, and it's good. So keep going, keep going. It, it, no, no, but it's I, great. But, it's great. But but listen, maybe 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 I should hold back my. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. good. You're passionate about it. It's good. It's good. But but at the end of the day, Tom, it, it is a business. So I would, it's ups and downs. So I don't want to say it's all roses. Uh, you know, and the level of effort is commensurate with the reward. Well, I mean, yeah, and on that, yeah, on that point, it's, it's, it's different. Sometimes different um, different real estate properties can serve different needs. You know, some are going to produce a higher, you know, will will produce a higher rate of return in our opinion um, than others. Um, and then, but sometimes, so for example, I had this one guy tell me many years ago, Pierre Paul, he's like, you know what? The way to apartment buildings, to look at apartment buildings are like this, you know, go make your money somewhere else. And once you've made your money, put them in apartment buildings because they just kind of slowly churn out money. But if you're looking to make big money in apartment buildings, that's not the place to do it. And then, like you said, so that he was, he was you know, fully convinced about that. Then you're right, 2009, 2010 hit, interest rates dropped. And apartment buildings, I remember looking at one in Oakville, Ontario, um, for someone in my family, and I remember we were looking at the cap rate, and I think maybe the cap rate, and we'll talk about cap rates more in a second, Pierre Paul, but I think the cap rate might have been around 6% or something. I, I forget, maybe it was 5.9 or something, and I remember he, he was with his business partner, and he was saying, oh, geez, you know, I don't know if that's great or that's a great return on my investment or not, um, and uh, cap rates then, so he didn't buy. Cap rates then got squeezed down, as you know, um, yeah. down to like, I don't know, I want to say on that building, down to like four and a half. The building goes up. The, the building goes up. I think it almost, Nick, I can't, Nick, I don't know if you remember the price. I want to say the price went from like 1.1 1. 1 or 2 million. I think it went up to like 1.8 million or so. I was going to say more. I thought it was almost 800 to a million in, in like yeah. a few years, right? In a few years. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. And then our friend told us that he's like, oh, maybe maybe in different economic cycles you can make big money quick with apartment buildings, you know. And I know there's different strategies as well that we'll, we'll talk about. But, uh, but Pierre Paul, so on that, I just want to summarize on the CMHC stuff. So you think CMHC were in good hands in the year 2018. CMHC is still a very uh, stable mortgage insurer kind of protecting the real estate market here in Canada? Yeah, I, they're definitely, so, you know, we can talk about the stress test and all that. They, they definitely err on the extremely conservative side. But as you know, household debts are really high, and they're worried about that and all that. But, no, honestly, this is still the, the, the one of the best, if not the best, housing finance uh, organization in the entire world. I do believe that. And uh, overall, it works in our favor. Remember, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a corporation that belongs to all of us Canadians. So that's... I would uh, definitely uh, vouch for CMHC in that regard. Uh, having seen what other countries do and the kind of financing systems they have in place, for sure, for sure, it is, it is a solid uh, entity. I mean, I just was reading some numbers, right? The numbers are down in terms of sales and everything. It's uh, the worst numbers. I was just reading that quickly a few minutes ago. But at the end of the day, it's for everybody's benefit that CMHC is there, you know, and that, that's, uh, that's the payoff for being overly conservative, you know, benefits all Canadians. So, and are yeah, you I can definitely using, I know you. Yeah, you were mentioning you have a bunch of, you know, uh, multi-unit uh, apartment buildings and stuff. Are you still leveraging CMHC's mortgage insurance products for yourself or for people you're you're helping out? Like, is that something that you're still active with, leveraging what CMHC has to offer? Absolutely. Or no? Like a, it is, most, right? A little bit. Most of the time I do. Every circumstance will be different. But generally speaking, my, my, my favorite approach, definitely going CMHC. Uh, it's significantly a lot more hassle than going conventionally. The conventional meaning that the loan is not, uh, the financing is not insured by, uh, by CMHC. It's a lot more hassle, but I'm a former insider, so I know all the way around it. Uh, because you benefit from a lower interest rate, right, compared to uh, non-CMH insured financing, 1% uh, common. So it impacts your return on investment significantly. Uh, you can play around some of the other parameters. You can extend the amortization up to 40 years still. Right, some, a lot of people don't realize that. I wouldn't recommend doing that, uh, but uh, especially when the cost of money remains very, very low. I just refinanced uh, a building two months ago, and I got a CMH insured interest rate of 3.03%. So that's pretty cheap money, right? Whereas the cap rate uh, is probably in the vicinity of uh, five and three quarter in that particular area, you know. So uh, definitely, I would uh, CMH still makes sense. 
but it's a lot more complicated, bureaucratic. It, uh, as you said, uh, that's why some yeah, people get angry a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, and, and what about down payment? Or if you do go the CMHC route instead of like kind of conventional financing, what about down payment um, requirements? Are they the same as getting kind of just a non-CMHC uh, mortgage program? So, so yes and no. It depends, and this is one of the deciding factors, one of the pros or cons. You know. Uh, depends how you want to look at it, but if you go conventional financing, you've got to put down at least 25% because the maximum loan to value, and that's market value, this is on the non-CMH insured financing that you can get conventional lenders, is 75% maximum loan to value. So that means you have to come up with at least 25% as a down payment, plus all the related costs, which might be somewhat cheaper with uh, a conventional lender, but let's say 30%. Whereas if you go CMHC, and this is important, and I'm going to slow that down a little bit because you're asking a kind of a, an advanced question, Tom. If you go CMHC, technically speaking, CMHC says in their you know on their website they'll go up to 85% of the lending value. People can go to my website. Uh, I've got a blog post on that, just on that, talking about lending value versus market value. And when CMHC says that 85% of lending value, and in brackets, as determined by CMHC. What that means is rarely, uh, you know, market value. So that means what? You can't get 85% of market value, maybe 75, 80, somewhere in that vicinity. So you can get perhaps sometimes more money. But they tend to be very conservative with the numbers. Uh, and, and so sometimes they tend to inflate, uh, you know, some of the operating expenses as well. And so that's that. That's the half. Okay. 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 So and so, just so if I can, if I can just kind of repeat yeah, what you yeah. said there. If you do get like an eighty-five percent loan-to-value program from CMHC and you buy a building for the market value, you're able to negotiate out is like two million dollars. CMHC, because they're conservative, they might actually appraise that once they crunch the numbers. Uh, they might appraise that using their vacancy rates and their you know expenses. Yeah. They might appraise that building at not two million at like let's say just I'm throwing out a number like 1.8 million. So then they'll you give you 85% loan to value on the 1.8 million, and you still have to get the extra 200,000, the difference. But overall, depending on the building, that still may be a valuable thing to you for different reasons: the longer amortization, the lower interest rate, and you know whatnot. And you kind of have to evaluate it. So, uh, Listen, let me put it to you simply, right? I mean, I own a portfolio of 160 doors worth $22 million or something, but don't take it from me. Take it from the REITs, you know, the, the boardwalk of this world, right, which is the largest landlord in Canada, all those real estate investment trusts. All day long, they will go CMHC despite the hassles for the advantages, which is a lower interest rate, uh, basically, and which gives you a greater return on investment. So it's not just me saying that, but it's a fact of the – seasoned, experienced, uh, you know, multifamily owners will go usually CMHC a lot of the time. But then again, uh, as you said, it was a cute Nick that said that, or Tom, doesn't matter which said that, but you need to figure out uh, that that uh, testimony that you got from somebody else that said, you know, make your money elsewhere than buy multifamily properties. I would tend to agree with that, to be honest with you. I'm moving more away from getting my income from different sources for that very reason. So you need to be clear. So if you go with a conventional lender, let's say, you amortize your loan, or the maximum amortization is, is 25 years. I forgot to mention that on conventional loans. But the good news is right now with the cost of money, even conventional loans, even though they're 1% higher, the interest rate is 1% higher, you pay that principal down faster if you reduce the amortization period. So as an investor, you need to figure out why and what's the best strategy for your circumstances, right? So okay. everybody's different. I have a couple of questions for you. We've thrown out the, the, the just for someone who's not familiar, we've thrown out the term cap rate. And I, I remember when I first started getting involved with multi-unit buildings, I would call people and they, they, they would start talking this language like, oh, that's that's trading at a cap of this and this is at a cap of that. And I thought I was in a different world, Pierre Paul. <laughs> for yeah. anyone listening to this who hasn't heard that, the cap is short for capitalization rate. And, and uh, off the top of your head, I don't know if I'm going to put you on the spot or not, but how does someone come up with the capitalization rate of a building? Just, just so should we not explain a little bit to you folks, or you think your folks know what a cap rate is? You know, there's a lot of people listening to this. Some people have never heard that in their lives, Pierre Paul. I can do this quickly if you allow me. It's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Simplify because yeah, yeah. that's what I do for a living, as you know. Yeah. First of all, a cap rate, it, it's, it, the, uh, the value of an apartment building is derived out of its net operating income. That's the income before you service your mortgage, okay? 
so it's not your cash flow, okay? So the 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 the, the greater the NOI, the greater usually uh, the value of the property. But a cap rate is based on that approach of the you know the income deriving the value of the property, and it's a yield rate. So if uh, if uh, and to find out what what appraisers do, they look at the market, they look at recent sales for a comparable property, and they'll derive the cap rate from the sale. So basically the formula goes that it's your NOI divided by, it's Uncle Irv. I'll tell you what, I've got a better way of saying this. Uncle Irv, if you imagine a, a triangle, as long as you have the income of the property and you have one of the other two values, either it's purchase price or it's NOI, then you can find out what the property's cap rate is and it's a division. So you divide the income divided by the purchase price or you take the uh, NOI, you divide it by the, uh, the, the the cap rate. If you have it, you'll end up with the third value. Maybe this is too complicated for a plot. You, are, you, you can tell. Yeah, I'm going to bring this on. I'm just going to repeat what you said. I'm going to try and simplify a little because you can tell you're a master of this stuff, <laughs> the way you're explaining. You basically take the, the gross income of the property, so whatever the rent is, and I don't know if you're going to get any other money in some way from the property, laundry, parking, whatever. You take the gross income from the property. You subtract any of the operating expenses that you count and that leaves you with the net operating income. You divide that number by the purchase price of the property, and that gives you this magical cap rate number. And I know, Pierre-Paul, I'm simplifying that way down. No, no, <laughs> it's good. It's good for the purpose, uh, Tom. Yeah, 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 yeah. At it, it's a risk level. Like it, it, it shows a couple of things. If, if, if the risk of the property, like the property presents a low risk, then the cap rate will be low because that would be a property in high demand as well. That's another way. Or it's a yield risk. Let's say I bought a property two million and my cap rate is five percent. Then it would mean that I'm expecting an NOI to be five percent of that uh, purchase price, an NOI, a net income annual income to be five percent. So that's it's kind of a yield indicator to summarize it. <laughs> and, and no, it's good. And then that's one of the primary numbers that when you go to well, let me ask you because I'm not sure myself. Is that one of the primary numbers when you go for lending? that the underwriter is going to, like I know there's a whole bunch of stuff here, but that's one of the things the underwriter is going to look at, correct? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the, the method by which they will arrive at a value which they will use to determine how much money they're going to lend Yeah, and they're going to come up with their own cap rate. doesn't matter what you've calculated because they're going to come up with their own, like the under, when you were an underwriter at CMHC, did you have access to like a, a vacancy database of some sort where you can see vacancy rates in different communities to come up with your vacancy rate number? Like, how did you come so, up with vacancy? Yeah, uh, the vacancy rate where we use CMHC's uh, rental market surveys, right, that, uh, that are done every, every fall. So we use that. But in terms of the choice of cap rates, uh, it was a bit self-serving. We use other properties in the area to arrive at a somewhat highly arbitrary uh, cap rate percentage. Okay. If, it's, okay. if it's conventional financing, they will use the cap rate arrived at by the appraisal. Here's one thing I want to tell. I think we went a bit complicated on cap rates, uh, Tom, and you said yourself at the no, beginning. Good. It's, good. it's good to go complicated sometimes. But, but the point is, I don't want people <laughs> to get hung up on that. You know why, Tom and Nick? Because you don't get to choose the cap rate. All you, you need to know is it's, it's a method to arrive at a value uh, when, when the bank, whether the conventional lender or CMHC insured you know, lender, will determine how much money they're going to lend you, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. and, and the lower the cap rate, that means that the income represents a smaller uh, portion of a larger amount, a larger value. So low cap rates, as you said, have been compressing in many areas, many markets, such as CTA, given, you know, like the example you were mentioning, that meant what, if the cap rate is lower, the price, uh, the value is higher. So that's oh, what's God. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your friend probably regrets not buying that property. Uh, yeah, it's not something, it's, 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 it's uh, yeah, it's a extended family member, and we don't bring up the conversation too much. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I want to something else to our point. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, the the, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is that I was surprised. I guess I was naive. I thought, oh my gosh, when you know when I go and buy an apartment building or bigger real estate, it's all determined on the numbers. And I didn't realize that you still have to give some sort of personal guarantee in Canada, oh, yeah. even on bigger purchases. That was a shock to me. For some reason, I thought you know what, this is a scandal. I'm going to get a corporation. I'll buy this thing inside the corporation. It's all qualified based on the financing of the building. And then when I learned that you still have to personally guarantee, I thought, well, two things hit me. I go, well, that kind of sucks. I don't want a personal guarantee, but there was no way around it. Um, and then uh, the second thing is it just made me think that it's a, it kind of creates a very stable real estate market in Canada. Well, uh, 
maybe I'll take that back. I don't know if it, it just helps when you have to personally guarantee it. It doesn't make you go crazy on what you're doing, I think. Um, You can always negotiate with the banks on the personal guarantee. So as your own portfolio and your own kind of, you know, financials look better and better over the years, you can always push the banks to limit your personal guarantees and drive them down as as, as low as possible and for shorter terms. Um, But anyway, that was a shock to me, Pierre Paul. When I first heard that, I'm like, what do you mean I have a personal guarantee? This is a corporation I'm, I'm buying this building in. But you see, to me, uh, so it, you're right, this is a fact of life if you're going to join the big leagues of real estate investing, which multifamily properties are. But you know what, uh, Dominic, I never lost a minute of sleep over providing my personal guarantees on all the properties that I own. I lost more sleep over my daughter when she was a teenage girl, I tell you that. Uh, because it's, <laughs> this is no joke. It's, it's the cost of doing business. But I just mentioned earlier, these properties don't default. So, you know, the guarantees are never called upon pretty much hardly ever. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's know, a good point. It's a good point. I think it's just when you're doing it the first time, you're – Yeah. Anyway, time, I was yeah. younger and scared and petrified of everything, yeah. you know. So, But you're right. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point, you know, the default on these. Well, just getting your inside information on what how many defaults you saw, which was, it sounds like it was essentially zero, is really uh, rather interesting. And, and to this day, it's still zero, right? We've had the yeah, recession yeah. not long ago. That's interesting. To this yeah, day, yeah. still. Yeah. Okay, I have a question for you on apartment buildings. Sometimes some people will tell me, well, Tom, you have to understand with apartment buildings, these things are built to fall down. You know, a lot of brick goes up, and uh, over 30, 40, and 50 years, this starts to crumble, and you have to understand. And I legitimately have been told this to my face before, Pierre Paul. So I'm just interested in your thinking on on that when someone tells you, you know, these apartment buildings, as they get older, they require a certain amount of maintenance, and uh, that's something you might not be planning for. How do you, how, how would you address that possible concern? Well, it's interesting. So you guys live in GTA, and as you know, I, I, I get around. I travel to uh, Quebec, where my family is, and Ontario. I have lots of friends and also family. And let's say you go and you walk around uh, – downtown, uh, gosh, give me some neighborhoods downtown where I used to go to University U of T, uh, where the old Maddie, the bar is, right? Some of these houses and some of these apartment buildings, some of them are century old and still cranking out cash flow, right? So, you know, age of it is, 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 uh, is not a, well, it is a factor, but even an older property, it's operating like the, the repair and maintenance expenses will be greater as the property ages, but you can still make money. So you do, I mean, we, you, you move out uh, because in Ontario, as I said, you can find easily 100-year-old uh, apartment buildings that, like I said, still performing, still producing uh, return for the, their owners. So it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, every continuing to do maintenance on an ongoing basis and assessing what we call the property risk factor. How old is my roof? What's the remaining economic life of the roof? Right, when building a reserve to replace it, and same thing with the boiler and you know different components of the building. So you have to keep your eyes on it. Uh, it's a cash 22. A couple of years ago, now I almost bought a, a very large building with two uh, two investors, uh, 172 unit building, brand new, super well built. Uh, you know what the operating expenses are on a newer building like that that has everything high efficiency, boiler and everything. All the systems are high efficiency. Oh, geez, I can only imagine. Must be great. 25% of the income, the effective gross income. Whereas if you go with an older building, like some of those that I own uh, built in the 60s, they're at about 45 to 50% of the income in terms of operating expenses. So, but but the, the downside, if you buy new, it costs you more capital of fund to buy. So it's a chicken and egg. So that's why a lot of the uh, large uh, institutional investors like the pension funds will buy uh, these larger buildings and, you know, uh, which are cost more up front, but they're in it for the long run. So it's a matter of maintaining these buildings, but like I said, you have lots in uh, Ontario and Quebec and, you know, older provinces in Canada, very old, century-old buildings that are still performing. It's a matter of keeping, uh, keeping the maintenance up uh, on a regular yeah, basis. So you run it like any business. You plan for these things. And yeah, if, sure by the way, I just want to let you know, Pierre, Paul, Nick's not being silent. Somehow we he, 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 we lost him on the line, and the conference line's not letting him back in. See why we need to get you here in person and, t- and talk? We can't, we're not used to Next that. Next time on the GTA, you've got to come definitely, in. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely do that. Is the new office going to be ready by then? <laughs> the new office, we get the keys February 1st, and we have to build out, so we're probably like spring by then. Okay. So listen, I, I, want, to, I, I want to ask you uh, something. Um, 
this could also be an opportunity, I think, because many times I've seen a lot of people make great money with apartment buildings when they buy buildings that are slightly beat down. Specifically, the insides of these units haven't been renovated. And when they have tenant turnover, they go in and update the inside. And I know that costs money. Like, I understand there's capital to do that. But once you renovate the inside of it, if rents have moved and rents have greatly moved in Ontario, um, you can then change the income component of these buildings greatly. So I've seen a lot of people buy buildings, like, like several examples of this, where they go and increase the income potential of a building by renovating an older building. And I'm sure you've seen stories like this. Too. To me, this is where you kind of like have a, it's kind of like a flipping, instead of flipping a house, it's like flipping a building, you know, where people can go in and update the building and the, the, get the, the demand for rent then is so great that they can increase the price on rent and get much higher rent. Like we're seeing, uh, there, uh, there's a couple examples of this recently that have been seen in Kitchener, Ontario here, Pierre Paul, where yeah. rent was, uh, you know, they were getting, they had some tenants for quite a long time and they were getting about $800 a month and the units had not been updated in, you know, I want to say decades. Um, and there was an opportunity to update the um, update the units, and it looks like they're going to be able to get uh, several hundreds of dollars more per unit after this is done, which is going to have a great effect on the value of the building. So there's an opportunity uh, when buildings are old as well. No, de definitely, uh, Tom. And those are we call those uh, I call those home runs. And that's the beauty yeah. when you do this, you know what to look for. And I've done this, uh, Tom, where within a matter of ten months. I, 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 uh, we made 27% of our money exactly doing that. So that presupposes that you've done your homework, you've studied your market, you know what the market average rents are and what you can, you know, increase them to and you know what, uh, what needs to be done, you know, in terms of upgrades to units and all of that. So those are great. And I'm, I'm pleased to report I do have some, one of, you know, some of those once in a while, not all the time. But that's the beauty. If you know what you're doing, you can look uh, yeah, for, you can for uh, things like, like that. that. But, but you need to do your homework, uh, Tommy. It requires sure, yeah, yeah. You know, knowledge of the market and, and, and all of that and yeah, there's capital, know, financing uh, conditions available out there for sure. But, yeah, I wanna those ask, are great. I've done a few of those. <laughs> I want to ask, ask you something else on uh, apartment buildings. Just um, finding them uh, right now, or do you have, like, do you, do you operate primarily in uh, – Calgary, do you operate, like, do you, you know, do you help people right across the country? Is there a, is there a certain area where Canada as a whole, uh, what you're interested in when you're looking for apartment buildings? And then I want to ask you something more about CMHC. Okay. I, I focused at this time in my real estate investing career to what I know best, which is here in Alberta, in Edmonton. Like I said, uh, cap rates are somewhere in the vicinity of uh, high 5% to low uh, 6%. So there are opportunities, although the economy here is still uh, has not fully recovered. We're no not no longer technically into a recession because we have some growth, but uh, it, it, people lots of people are still suffering. But then again, uh, it's also an opportunity, as you said, to, to perhaps purchase for some people. Uh, but at some point, I'll expand elsewhere. But right now, I'm focusing to what I know best. Because I was an underwriter here, I, I know historically vacancies and I know areas and specific pockets in the market very well. So uh, that's what I focus on because it's, it's a low-hanging fruit for me and it's closer to home. So I focus mostly yeah, in Edmonton okay. at this point. Okay, know, I have uh, a question for you. Because you're at CMHC, I'm, I'm curious. Does CMHC or do underwriters have certain preferences on multi-unit buildings? You, you know, and what, what comes to mind are like... Uh, bachelors, uh, you know, a, a building full, full of bachelor units versus two bedroom, or uh, balconies and no balconies, undercar garage, garage uh, sorry, underground garage and no underground garage. Are these are these things that come into play, and are they meaningful, or is this just doesn't really matter? Uh, no, it does matter. Not so much from the point of view of uh, CMHC, but more from the investor's point of view. Uh, Tom, you, you want to make sure that you have a good uh, sweet mix. Uh, which is uh, relevant for your market area. Uh, so, but most of us like to have a good mix between uh, one bedrooms and two bedrooms. Why? Because it, cater, it caters to a greater uh, population segment, right? So, you know, some people want a one bedroom. So that means that it keeps your vacancies uh, down if you have a good mix, a good sweet mix in your building. Although I, I have an old realtor that I've uh, been working with for so many years, but she, she has a client from Vancouver that prefers apartment buildings with bachelors because on a per square foot basis, uh, you know, the owner gets more money. So, but generally speaking, I think more people agree with me. You know, you want a good mix with uh, 
uh, twos and, you know, two, two bedrooms and one bedroom. Although in a recessionary time, I have one building. It's a 38-unit building, uh, Tom. And uh, out of 38 units, 36 are two-bedroom, very large, two bedrooms with above-ground balconies and all of that. Very spacious units, very bright in a great area. And uh, in recessionary times, when the times are tough, people shack up together. So depending on the market area, this is how you you got to drill down and know your market well. Sometimes if you have a building full of two-bedroom units, it's not bad either. I mean, certainly mine is performing extremely well right now. So that's, okay. uh, so. And I know it's more rare, but how, how do you find uh, three-bedroom units? Are those just a ah, little little too big in general? Like you, get, you, you don't get who you're looking for in these buildings at three-bedroom units? Is that too big? Very rare. The buildings that I've seen with three bedrooms, it's usually a small component of the building. So generally speaking, you'll have one and two bedrooms, and they may have, uh, let's say, in a, in a, you know, in a 25-unit building, you might have two or three, three bedrooms, but they're very rare. So again, this is something that um, you don't want to be too specific, but you know, when I when I teach people about this, I say figure out what what it is that you want, like including the sweet mix. If that's something that you want. You ask your realtor to go out and find you something that has three bedrooms, but it, they're rare. They're not not many. Uh, I have not uh, come across a lot of buildings which have three bedrooms. Yeah, either either either. And, and here's the thing, Tom. You know what happens? You have more tenants within, more people living within the unit, so they they consume a lot of energy. That's know, so always it, been our yeah. there's, there's an extra cost to having more people living within a unit, so there's that element as well. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then for someone listening to this just about multi-unit buildings, how does the refinance uh, situation work? So if the capitalization rates of buildings in an area change and CMHC says, oh, geez, you know, these, these cap rates are going down in the area, which usually means the, the, the market value of the, the, the buildings are going up, can you just apply then for a refinance because – you know, the value of your building is higher and you can go in and extract the equity. Like, I understand it's going to be determined on the income and everything, but is that just how it works? You know, hey, yeah, cap rates have gone down. And, and you see so, that you said, you said you saw that a lot in 2000, I want to say uh, 9 or, or 10. Do you, is that something you see regularly? Absolutely, Tom. And I just did the, the one deal that I just refinanced uh, two months ago. That's exactly what I did. Uh, I bought it, and again, it presupposes that you know your market well when you use that strategy. But instead of locking the loan with a CMHC insured uh, financing upfront, I took a bridge loan. I took out a bridge loan, which is a temporary loan, usually about 12 months, at a higher interest rate. And the reason I did that is because I knew I could go in and do exactly what you said, your friend that passed out on that opportunity years ago. I knew I could go in, increase my rent to market average, and perhaps some more a little bit more because I was going to complete some upgrades to the units. And uh, I knew I could also bring down, reduce my operating expenses by doing two things. First of all, by replacing those old toilets with 12-liter tanks at the back, right, with, you know, uh, three-liter specially patented toilets because you pay for water going to your building and sewer water coming out. So I knew I could reduce my, my sewage costs or, or, or water costs, my water bills like that, the other thing that I was able to do in that particular building, it had only one power meter, one electricity meter for the entire building. So tenants paid rent and electricity was included in their rent. But as you know, they didn't care how much electricity they were consuming. So what I did is I installed power or electric, electrical submeters in the building. I reduced my operating expenses uh, on the uh, water side alone or you know, water consumption 57%. On the electricity side, electricity side, it was about something like that, about 30, 30% of the, the exact number escapes me, but significant. So what I did is I increased my rent, right? I was able to increase them to market average by upgrading some of the units on tenant turnover, and then I was able to reduce my operating expenses. Hence, the result is a greater NOI, hence a greater valuation of the billing. And we just refinanced and did an equity takeout. Uh, but there's always a risk to do that if the market flops under your feet during that time. <laughs> so as you said, you may end up uh, with a valuation that's less than what you expect. So, so it's, it's a, it's sure, a higher, risk. higher risk. You're taking risk, but the reward, you know, higher risk, higher reward. Okay. Commensurate with the level of, uh, of risk that you're taking, for sure. And I've done that mm-hmm. several times successfully. But you need to know, you need to do your homework, you need to study your market, you need to, to have a sense for these financing. That's what the wealthy landlords do, guys, all day long, especially the REITs. Like I said, the, the large landlords, it's institutional landlords that are in the stock market, 
that's what they do. That's what I observe. That's why I'm, whenever I can, I, I repeat the same uh, strategies, of course. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any uh, favorite, I'm probably going to put you on the spot here, any favorite, like, just crazy stories from a tenant within an apartment building? Because I know, obviously, I think we're all sold that apartment buildings, there's a lot of advantages to them and stuff, but any funny, crazy story that comes to mind that just you'll never forget on one of your tenants in an apartment building that you want to share or that you want to <laughs> not, not bring it up well, because you put it back in the back recesses oh. of your mind? Well, here's the good news. I'm just trying, I don't, I'm just trying to keep it real. No, no, no. It's a, and that, that side of the business is the same for people that invest in small rental properties, right? Here's the good news. I don't have a lot of these stories because most of the hassles, again, are handled by, by property case. manager and yeah, my outside yeah. manager. No, no, but I have one that uh, a, a lady in the basement that, that was uh, literally harassing other tenants and putting blood on their door and all of that. And, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, as you know, with, if you go to court, to landlord-tenant uh, court, you got to provide evidence of that, and it went on for years. And then, of course, uh, the, the usual dead body once in a while that uh, has been oh, in the oh, for a while, and yeah, you got to yeah. clean up. And uh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> it's funny. When we started with with investment properties, the first time you get a call from a property manager or you have to deal with it yourself, it's just full of panic. You know, you're just full out like, world is coming to an end. I'm going to lose everything. This is a disaster. Then after you go in real estate for, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, and 15 years, nothing shocks you anymore. I find, like, someone will come up to me or Nick and say, guys, you're not going to believe what I just dealt with with this property. And, and our answer now is, like, really? You know, try us. You know, just give it to me. I'll tell you if we've heard or dealt with anything more crazy in our, in our lives. Well, <laughs> that's you, you, get, but, you get immune to it a little bit. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, totally. right? Oh, my God, totally, <laughs> totally. You just, you just deal with higher-level problems. I found that you just deal with higher-level problems. You know, what was a problem to me when I was beginning out in, in real estate and in business and as an entrepreneur, when you first begin, you know, little problems were big problems. And today, things that used to bother Nick and I doesn't even – it barely registers, you know? So it's interesting to see how you develop as, a, as an entrepreneur. And it's been interesting to just – you know, we've kind of known each other casually for a few years, and we're slowly getting to know each other more and more, Pierre Paul. And just your own journey is just super interesting. You know, to go um, to get a, 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 a job with CMHC, then to decide to leave that job. Like, you must have had, were you close? Like, were you, most people count the years to a pension in a government job. Like, did people just laugh at you that you were going to walk away? Like, how was, how was that whole experience? No, and that's important. Uh, I appreciate you asking the question, Tom, because I know you guys have a similar story. You, you didn't like your corporate jobs and all of that. And it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, not, it's not for everybody, perhaps, uh, but I would do it again and again, despite the significant challenges uh, that it, it presented. There were some dark days. I'm not going to dispute that. There are still some tough days, but I agree with you. Some problems that initially seem to be so big now as an entrepreneur it, 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 it seemed like, you know, irrelevant. And, you know, you know you can handle it. Indeed, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I love that, being in this place where I own my time, my thought process. You know, I, my dad passed away in June. I could take 10 days off, and I was with him on his yeah. dying bed until his oh, last geez. breath. I'm sorry to hear that, Peter Paul. No, but no, the reason I'm saying this is that it's, it's, it's a privilege to have that freedom Tom, you know what I'm saying? That's what I. Totally. That's what real estate yeah. gives me, right? Or go and travel like you guys do. I mean, I don't travel as near nearly as much as you, but and and those are the benefits that come with taking certain risks, like I have. I I didn't have a parachute, but I've been building wings. Or I, I keep saying uh, ever since and picking up LCC little by little. But that level of freedom uh, is priceless, right? And uh, you know, it's it, it's been worthwhile for me, definitely. So I know I, I would do it again. I know you've been, you mentioned your website, so can you hand out your URL? And I know you've been helping people with this. I know you also do, I think you do a, a, a multi-unit workshop in Alberta, but you're coming here in a few weeks to do one. So give us the whole scoop. Like, what's your website? What are you doing? Uh, what's happening in a few weeks? Can you give us the lowdown? Sure, sure. So first of all, multifamily, like, like uh, Nick said or, or you earlier, there's pros and cons to everything, right? Obviously, I'm of the belief that the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages. That's why I made it, mainly because of the multiplier effect, right? Uh, but uh, so, yes, I've been teaching this stuff since uh, for quite some time, I guess 10 years now, and I have a live workshop. I have one coming up this coming weekend in, in the Edmonton uh, on the 14th, uh, sorry, 12th, 13th, and 14th. It's 
very cool. It's a live two-and-a-half-day live event. It's experiential. First, you come and inspect one of my buildings, accompanied by a building inspector, and you get up on the roof, boiler room, you sample a few units and all of that, and then you come back to a classroom, and the same building you inspected, we, we review as a case study from beginning to end why I picked that market area, why I picked that property, how I financed it, the kind of return on investment I got, how I crunched the numbers, the documents that I reviewed conducting my due diligence. So it's super thorough uh, from beginning to end. Then I have a few guest speakers that come in and add more case studies because it's all learning by doing, experiential. You know, going through case studies, actual case studies. Uh, I usually have a student of mine who's a successful investor to come and share their story, and I have a mortgage broker and a property manager to give the students a full perspective on what it means uh, to invest in apartment buildings and to get some... Uh, you know, within the context of the classroom, some uh, experience under their belt and, you know, break that and boost their confidence, basically. Because I think, you know, all of us human beings are very powerful and we, we can do so much more if we, we we got rid of our fear or did away with our fear. I mean, we never lose the fear, but if we could get past that fear point. And so that the home course is intended to be very thorough. It's unique in Canada. And uh, that's what I do. And I have one in Hamilton. Uh, October 26th, 27th, and 28th. Uh, so that's what I do. I so have like book. threefold that you, you're, you're, you're like three, two and, and, days. Days, two and a half days. Two and a half days. Two and a half days. Because the, okay. the, the, the Friday afternoon is just the inspection. We get that out of the way, and then it's two days of uh, a lot of contents, a lot of fun. Yeah. So then you go to, uh, you spend time in Hamilton doing the same thing? Same, same idea. We go and inspect the property with a, a company by a building inspector. The whole, the whole, uh, whole curriculum is the same thing. And there's an ebook. What's the URL for someone listening to this? I guess what's the URL to find information about those? And then on yeah. your website, do you have like a cap rate explanation or, or, or spreadsheet yeah. or anything? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Okay. So I what's have, the URL uh, for this stuff? So multifamilyinvestingcanada.com. Multi or multifamilyinvestingcanada.com. And there's an ebook there that will give you some key uh, consideration, you know, if you want to, you're considering investing in multifamily properties. And I give you the full picture, the pros and the cons and the advantages and all of that. So, uh, and a bit my story, a little bit more details and all of that. So multifamilyinvestingcanada.com. And were you about to say something about a book? Or is that what you mentioned, your ebook? Yeah, so there's an ebook okay. there that you can download, Multifamily Investing Secrets Revealed. So it's okay. at multifamilyinvestingcanada.com. Okay, and it gives it. you an idea about Sure, Paul, we have so much involved. Remember, you tell it's not an ebook, it's a book. It's a digital copy of a book. It sounds so much greater. Okay, it's a book. It's a book. Okay, cool. Yeah. So thank you. So that's multifamilyinvestingcanada.com. You could find your events. You could find the digital copy of the book that you're referring to, um, worksheets, that kind of stuff too. Well, you've got to take uh, some of the training programs, right, for that kind of got stuff. Got it, but okay. I will, I, I will coming, I'll, I'll be coming up with a lower tier kind of a, a course in the next, in the near future, uh, probably before, before Christmas or soon after Christmas. Um, okay, but, yeah, awesome. But the, so that's where pretty people cool, can find, uh, find more information about you and follow you and the whole bit. Exactly, and they can see testimonials about the course uh, from people who uh, graduate from the course. So it rates 9 out of 10 uh, every time I do it. So, okay, so then, I, uh, Listen, I don't know if we're going to, you know, your schedule when you're in town then, but we should definitely do something like this in person. If it's not then, it's at another visit. But if you're going to be in town, let's see if our schedules sync up for that in a, in a few okay. weeks. Um, and then, yeah, I feel like you can talk about multi-investing for hours. So we'll definitely do this again. Um, we'll listen to, to the questions that we get and the feedback we get, and then I'll ask you a whole bunch more questions on the next time we do this. But hey, look, I just want to thank you for doing this because I think in Canada there's such a shortfall of information around this subject. I consider it like an old boys club, whereas like on, on, on residential real estate investing and a lot of the stuff you can get, um, you can get to realtor.ca and you can look at the properties and stuff. At the multi-unit level, a lot of it's kind of held in people's back pockets. It's shared quietly between people. It's, it's really, to me, like the old boys club of Canada that kind of has a lot of this information. So for someone like you to step up, share it from CMHC's point of view, from your experience at CMHC and now doing it out on your own for years and helping other people, just really want to thank you. You're doing a service for all of us, so well, we really appreciate it. You know, thank you, thank you, you for what you're doing. You know, Tom, I, I want to pause here because what you, you say now touches me. My mission, and it's, you're right, it's a no-boys club. It's, it's, there's no information. I think oftentimes people don't want you know, the, the rest of Canada or most investors to know sure, about it. Yeah, it's yeah. my mission. My mission statement is to democratize the access 
to multifamily investing in Canada. That's my purpose. And my purpose is to instruct, empower, and inspire in that regard. If people are willing to roll up their sleeves, there are a lot of moving parts, but anybody, you don't have to be a former CNHC underwriter to do this. I want your listeners to know this. Uh, it takes courage, vision, uh, and be clear about your goals, why you want to do this. And if uh, they're willing to, 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 to do it, then I'm willing to help them for sure. So awesome. thank you for having Fair me on. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Thank you, Tom. Hey everyone, it's Tom Krads again. So hopefully you enjoyed that chat. As you can tell, talking to Pierre-Paul Tourjean, that uh, we can uh, chat with him for a long time about stuff. So we'll definitely bring him back on the show. If you have any questions for any of the guests, if you have any guest ideas and you want to share anything with us, feel free to send us an email at podcast at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's podcast at rockstarinnercircle.com. We'll, we gather that information up. That, uh, that eventually finds its way to myself and Nick. So that's the email address to use for that. And if you're listening to this and you want any real estate um, uh, investing information, Canadian-based, you can get articles, resources, access to the training classes that we put on, uh, digital copies of our book that you can download at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's the best place to go, rockstarinnercircle.com. And with that, we'll talk to you soon. Until next time, your life, your terms.